Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Colby Hopkins, an independent researcher, writer, and activist. He studied history and political science at the University of Rhode Island and recently graduated from NYU with a master's in global affairs, where he specialized in international economic development and human rights. He has participated in many activist events and demonstrations, including a nonviolent uh, civil disobedience at the White House in 2006, which opposed the war in Iraq. And um, he worked with Operation First Casualty and Iraq veterans against the war. He was an organizer with Occupy Wall Street in New York City's Liberty Square and the West Harlem 99% from September 2011 until August of 2012, when he moved to Palestine to teach English. My goodness, Kobe, you are just an activist right down to your fingertips. <laughs> yeah, I try to do a little bit of everything, I guess. Well, what brought you to my attention was your new book, Another World is Possible, Freedom, Economic Truth, and Creating a Society of Humanness. What actually drew you into the world of politics and activism? Um, I think it's, it's um, something that's in, in most people who participate in activism. It's just this, you know, you, you look at the world around you and you, you hope to change it. And then it becomes um, an analysis of where you fit into that because there's so many people doing so many different types of work. And how do you, where do you fit in where you're going to have the greatest impact? That is a short answer, but I'm not sure how widely applicable it is because many people, you know, kind of wring their hands and say, oh, dear, oh, dear, what's going on in the world? And yet they never do anything. Um, there, there must be, was there anything in your childhood or background that kind of predisposed you to activism? Um, I think uh, for me specifically, I grew up uh, in a house where, where my mother um, um, talked about her participation in activism you know, when she was in college. She grew up in the 60s, and um, she, she participated in uh, some activism actually on the, the University of Rhode Island campus um, around um, – equality for the, the black students on campus and things like that. So I grew up listening to those stories and I actually participated in some local activism around the school system when I was uh, in elementary school. <laughs> and so I was always sort of thinking in that vein while trying to work and go through college, it was always, you know, what's my role? Um, and so I always looked at it like, uh, as an American citizen, my responsibility is to um, participate in American politics and speak out where I see my country doing things that I don't agree with to let my voice get heard. So that's been the, the main push. And I did take um, an educational route at one point. I decided that, uh, you know, after having gone through URI and studied political science, um, uh, I, I, I worked in various jobs for several years and then went into the uh, global affairs program at NYU. Shortly after that, Occupy Wall Street happened, and 
uh, right from the beginning, I thought this is this is something I can get behind because um, my my view on um, <clears throat> the, the the troubles with the world is always through sort of an economic lens. So that's why uh, that that's what brought me to Occupy in particular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Speaking of Occupy, there was such a, a sense of engagement. Um, I think by the general public, uh, and we were all watching it so closely and, and feeling emotionally attached, and then it sort of dissipated. I suppose it's very difficult to keep up um, a, a, a civil disobedience or, or protest like that for a very long time. But did it did it morph? What happened to it? Yeah, I think. Uh, um Morph might be a good word for it. Some people um, stayed along and con- continued along the same the same lines as far as the uh, you know the protesting of of Wall Street in in New York City and in, in various cities around the country. A lot of people um, sort of you know broke off into their into issues that they were specifically uh, passionate about. I think a lot of people. Um, worked with uh, what was called Occupy Sandy because Hurricane Sandy hit New York and there was an immediate need to help, um, you know, uh, uh, the recovery efforts there. And a lot of people found their way into the environmental movement because of the uh, Keystone Pipeline and then the uh, the fracking efforts in, in, in and around New York. So a lot of people moved into those. But there's still a lot of, of Occupy-related activities going on and people kind of fall in where they see the most fit. Indeed. I, I just got a book for review called Occupy Spirituality. So, yeah. uh, you know, the, I, I guess it's kind of a, a focus for um, the personal urge to make the world a better place in whatever area really appeals to you. So I guess the, the Occupy Wall Street was just a catalyst or, or uh, that ignited um, or, or gave people permission to get active. And this is what your book is all about, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that's correct. I think the, the, the part of Occupy Wall Street that, that really um, touched a lot of people, especially those, those who engaged um, in Occupy activities, was the, the, the participation element of it. Because on one hand, it was it was presented in the media as a very um, um, sort of polarized leftist engagement, but people who were there and participated knew that that's not really the case. It was much more um, of an effort to find ways to include everyone's voices and find common solutions, no matter where you fit on the political spectrum or how you identified. So. Uh, that's what I took from Occupy, as far as uh, what I what I put into the into the book, because I think um, it correlates a lot with with how people really um, would function, would like to function. Mm-hmm. Well, let's set the foundation for this discussion by by uh, giving us a sense of what you believe freedom is. <clears throat> well, I think freedom means means different things to different people, um, and ultimately, I think if we live in a society 
um, which we do, um, what one person does impacts other people. So we have this notion of freedom um, in academia and I think sort of in mainstream uh, political thought, which is um, freedom means freedom from government. It means freedom from op uh, oppression of government. You have, um, you know, the rights to property and then then um, r certain rights like those laid out in, in the United States in the Bill of Rights. Um, and there's this relationship with the government uh, and the people where uh, the government is in place to protect those freedoms. Um, but what's missing from that is is largely how what one person or, or institution does um, and, and its impacts on, on other people. Mm. So not that that's uh, totally excluded. Of course, we have laws that protect us and things like that. But um, in the larger analysis, freedom takes on this, this notion of, of um, you know, the right to gain unlimited amounts of property. And <clears throat> there's a lot of, of discussion on how that doesn't really matter because it doesn't impact other people because we can grow so much wealth and gain so much wealth. So everybody can get a piece of the pie kind of, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, growing the pie. Yeah. I'm sorry. Growing the pie in it, it, that right. the world is not a zero sum game. Right. Right. And so I take a different approach, which is that, you know, what one person or one institution does can impact others. Um, not based on a zero-sum game so much, but based on um, the interaction between economics and politics and the fact that, yes, we can uh, grow wealth, but it's also uh, it's not as, as cut and dry as the zero-sum game analysis. In other words... Um, well, you do mention in your book that the true costs of our economic activities are very rarely taken into account particularly right. the, the, the social and the environmental costs. Right. And that's where the, the zero-sum game uh, really doesn't, doesn't meet the actual reality that we live in. So, um, yes, we can, gain, we can gain wealth in the way that we measure it, in this dollar value, and it looks, it looks good because we're not factoring in a lot of the negative impacts that happen from creating that wealth. And, and I think the environment is the biggest example because we use, we extract and we use resources at such, a, at such an unsustainable rate. And that has negative impacts for um, um, a great number of people outside the, the economic interaction. Mm -hmm. Well, let's get back to this notion of creating wealth. Um, the, the, the cards seem to be stacked in favor of big business. How does that impact the rest of us? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly the, the cards are stacked in, in favor of big business. And I think that um, has an impact on, on everyone's freedom because uh, it allows people to manipulate the political sphere as well as the economic sphere which then in turn um, has more influence and sometimes even takes over the decision-making process and removes self-determination from um, 
individual people of lower economic standings. Well, it's not just just the lower economic rungs of the ladder, but it's all of us. It's the entire middle class, because when you consider um, the manipulation of the media, for example, um, mm -hmm. information is power, and our information is greatly um, distorted, I would say, um, whether it's from the right wing or from the left wing press. Uh, Fox News, MSNBC, you get um, kind of a polarization that is imposed upon your thinking that is very difficult to get beyond. And this is one of the things I want you to speak to, Colby. How do we start seeing the other side, the other opinions as being valid, as being part of our freedom and then getting beyond that to where we can connect. Right. I mean, I think this is one of the, the biggest problems, and you, and you laid it out really nice, um, in that it's like it's a polarization from the left and the right. Um, and people identify with um, those different sides. So if you're more of a liberal Democrat, you're going to uh, typically follow the uh, MSNBC and the right maybe uh, more on... Fox News. But what those institutions have in common is that they're they're big corporations and they're owned by big corporations. And what happens is they frame the debate in a polarized fashion. So when you hear the uh, opinions of the, the hosts of those shows and you align with them, you sort of take on those thoughts as if they were your own. And very often when having discussions in public forums, you will hear an opinion um, stated that it was actually, you know, crafted in the mainstream media. And it's difficult to get behind. People say, um, even those that try to be open-minded say, well, I look at the sources on the right and I look at the sources on the left and, and I know that the truth is somewhere in the middle. And that's not really accurate. In fact, the truth is a combination of, um, of, of multiple sides, the left, the right, what's in between and, and what's on, what's beyond, because the discussion that we as we define it in America with the left and the right is very narrow discussion. And I think that that informs how we have our political debates in Washington and, and, and in, in the various states. Um, so debates are had as arguments. There's, a, there's an opinion, <clears throat> I mean, there's a, an issue to be dealt with and people argue back and forth rather than look for uh, the common solutions and how we can find um, methods that that um, that please most people. And I think that that's, that's possible if we were having the discussion the right way. Well, the other thing that I've noticed is that debates are often uh, presented as a choice between two alternatives. And, right. um, you know, other alternatives don't even come into the discussion. For example, at present, we're having these debates about Syria and about whether to go in and, and uh, you know, bomb the heck out of them. Um, right. And it never occurs to those having the debate that maybe there is a third alternative. Maybe instead of using the, 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 the bombs to kill people, we can use the money that we would be spending on that to actually help the refugees, to, to change the, the economics 
of of the 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 country. That's that's correct. If we were um, if we were interested in the humanitarian aspects, that's exactly how we would use our money: is for the to help support the refugees and to help take uh, Syrian refugees into the United States. And this is the same situation we found ourselves in with Iraq. There wasn't that discussion. And we didn't really put in a large effort into into helping the Iraq refugees, which we were largely responsible for. Um, and on a broader scale, what you just said highlights the the similarities between what we consider the left and the right in in the United States. Can you expand upon that? Yeah. Um, well, for example, taking the Iraq war and uh, the current discussion on Syria, you have um, President Bush uh, representing the, the, the right wing in America and President Obama representing the left. And the debate is is largely the same and very narrow, just as you just as you highlighted. So we're not talking about um, um, the third option of of diplomacy and, and humanitarian aid. Um, because the debate is framed as, you know, do we go in or do we not go in, as if those are the only options. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, uh, this is how these debates typically are are presented, whether it's the left or the right. Sure, sure. Now, y the tagline of your book is creating a society of humanness. What do you mean by humanness? So the the idea of humanness, as as how I lay it out, is is all that it is to be human. So anything that that can be human, um, it, it sort of falls under the, this this broad concept. And the reason I I present it that way is because so many of our policies and our thought processes are based on this narrow definition of, of human nature, which is. Um, rational, self-interested, and competitive. And those things are are part of what it means to be human, but we're also uh, irrational, compassionate, and cooperative. Um, so and we're and we're impacted by things like, you know, society and civilization and education and morality and all these different things that inform our decisions. Mm -hmm. um, Yet we've we base our policy on such on such a narrow definition. Mm -hmm. um, I I know you gave the example in your book of the debate about um, the right to life, and uh, you you said that when you actually spoke with people, you found that their uh, uh, opinions really were quite close together. That the the gap that separated them was very small. And um, how would you go about creating an environment where people could actually discover that? Right. Well, this is the this is the thing that I that I really identified with at Occupy Wall Street, which was, um, and it sort of encountered what we were discussing about the media frame debate is is how do you have these open public discussions with people where you can really um, get into the human elements, which are not black and white. Um, polarizations. They're um, very detailed and, and very nuanced. And, um, you know, we, we could use any example from our, our social debates. The right to life uh, is one that I outlined in the book. Uh, but it's basically about getting people together and talking. 
and finding what's really important to each other and then having a common solution. And the reason I use the right to life in the book is because it's such an emotional issue that people are very passionate about because you're talking about life and death. And, you know, when uh, people are in all aspects of American society are interested in preserving life. Um, so if we're, um, trying to get beyond the, the polarization, that kind of discussion would be about how do we, how do we go about, um, you, you talk about setting up these, these sort of forums, what do you call them? Um, town meetings or GEs or, or something, GFs, what was it? Yeah. They, they, there's, I mean, I'm sure there's, there's different names for them, but, uh, you know, uh, it, a lot of um, towns have town hall meetings, um, which are presented in a terrible way in the media. But we called them at, at Occupy Wall Street, we called them general assemblies. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, it's just pu- it's public discussions. Um, and what we did at, in Liberty Square was we tried to help um, create processes to facilitate them in a way that gave everybody a voice. So um, rather than have... Do you think this is something that um, needs to be face-to-face or or can it be done uh, via the Internet? I think the Internet uh, and other communications uh, technologies are good tools to help uh, assist these, these type of things over long distances. What I argue in the book is that proximity is relevant and that you're more invested in the place that you live or work. Um, so you're more, you know, you're, you're, uh, more likely to have more productive dialogue. If you are face to face, there's a human element to, to being in the same room with people and seeing them, the body language, the, 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 the physical contact, things like that, that helps people form relationships and trust which are things that are extremely relevant to uh, economic success and, and um, democratic processes that you can't really measure. I think you also made the point that it's um, you know, rather difficult to have an impact on the world stage so uh, directly. So you recommend starting at your local level where you really can initiate the process of systemic change. Right. And here's where the, the Internet and those kind of tools would help facilitate global change is that um, based on what we were just saying, people are going to have the, the, the greater impact in their local communities. And they should. This is where your kids go to school. This is where you work. This is where you, you know, you care about the, the local environment and, and ecosystems and things. Um, and you're... You're going to have I suppose su- the local successes, if they were networked, actually could inspire each other. Exactly, and and sort of what I try to talk about is that your job as a as a global citizen is to impact your local community, and then maybe help facilitate in uh, some some type of organization in a couple communities that are adjacent to you, and then they do the same thing, and this is how it can spread. And then the Internet would help us network and stay aware of each other um, as far as issues that, um, by their nature, require discussion along a greater proximity. Now, you set up a website. Um, are you hoping to in- instigate or initiate a movement? 
Um, I mean, I'd like to help people to uh, have this sort of impact on their local level. So uh, help people to organize in their own areas. Part of the, um, the you, what I talk about in the book is that people, the, the idea is that people are most able to solve their own problems, giving the right tools. Um, and, and we're so far removed from those kind of discussions that I'm trying to help facilitate um, uh, more open public dialogue, similar to those that we did at uh, Occupy Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So and activism like, begins at home. Right, of course, yeah. yeah. Very good. Well, and what is, what is the website that you have? Uh, it's called the humanist the humanist project org um, and we're just starting it up uh, we so it, it's it's still a work in progress and we're trying to figure out the best ways to go about it um, part of it part of the the push uh, to get the the website going is the is this book mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the org. that's a wonderful title thank you well, Colby, I, I hope that you have tremendous success with this, and um, it is so wonderful to see young people like yourself who are willing to put themselves so on the line for the greater good. Do you, do you feel that this is an impulse that is spreading around the world? You know, one of the things, uh, being so active in New York City and seeing and being inspired by there's just so many activists and and so many people doing amazing work that as as big as the problems are i can't help but feel optimistic about it because uh people are just wonderful and creative and and compassionate and it's um i'm just trying to do a small part as well but i'm 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 inspired by so many other people well, I'm inspired by you, Colby, and I want to thank you for all that you do. Colby Hopkins, the author of Another World is Possible, Freedom, Economic Truth, and Creating a Society of Humanists. And your website is, again? Thehumanistproject.org. Thehumanistproject.org. Colby, thank you for being with us today. Thank, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. I really enjoyed being on. And now for a change of pace, I'd like to bring you some mini interviews that I conducted when I was doing a walkabout at the International New Age Trade Show in Denver. There were so many exhibitors from all around the world that I can only give you a tiny taste of what it felt like to wander through the aisles. So here we go. I'm speaking to the very glamorous and delightful Francoise Netter. She's the author of Movement for the Mind, Dance That Awakens Healing, Inspiration, and Wisdom. Francoise, tell us, how did you come to be doing this work? That's a great question. I became a dancer at the age of 21 when I was in Israel. I had seen my first modern dance company, and I thought, I'm going to do this. And it was pretty remarkable because at 21 you don't become a dancer, you stop being a dancer. But all of my life I knew that I was here on the planet to serve through my creativity. And when I discovered dance, I knew that I could serve and help others. So I discovered after becoming a dancer, I discovered dance therapy. And I thought, 
This is the perfect integration of creativity and serving and helping others. So I have pioneered this work that I now call Movement for the Mind for the last 35 years. And I have worked with corporate executives, graduate students in the MBA program at Stanford, thousands and thousands of sexual assault and incest survivors, and every walk of life. I now work with educators so that they can integrate the kinesthetic awareness and the, the wisdom of the body and integrate it in their lives. So this is kind of like um, psychology through movement. It is that, but it's even more. What I have found in my research in the last 35 years is that we have become so left-brained. We segment everything. We have, when we work with our spirituality, we go to church or we meditate. When we work with our body, we work out. When we work with our minds, we read books or we study things. And when we work emotionally, we may go to therapy. So what I have created with Movement for the Mind is a place where you can integrate all of your being, but it's birthed in creativity. So it's birthed with dance, and yet it's technicless so that anyone can do it. And then what I add to it is a theme. That theme could be healing oneself. That theme could be brainstorming. That theme could be discovering a greater sense of stress release. It could be just becoming more grounded and centered. So movement is combined with an intention to create your goal and a journey. And what I have found is when we are nonverbal, when we access both sides of the brain, it is when we are able to resource those aha moments, that wisdom that lies within. Can you describe to me what a session would look like? Absolutely. So you would lie down on the floor, and I have a CD, and what you would do first is you'd begin to um, breathe. And then you'd work with an inventory where you would pay attention to what's going on in your body without judgment, then what's going on in your mind, what's going on in your emotions, and then connect to what I call the wisdom or the witness within yourself. And then there would be a warm-up, where you warm up every part of your body on the floor, and then a middle level, and then high level. And then you learn other flows of movement. So you get the vocabulary of movement. And then you take a theme. Let's say that theme is being very stressed in your life. So there would be the next part of it would be working with a technology of looking at stress, taking it outside your body, moving with it, and then releasing it. So is it like you're giving your issue, whatever it might be, a persona that you then take outside of yourself and deal with? In stress management, it is. It's exactly like that. It's taking, it's giving whatever might be called your shadow or your negativity, a vehicle for expression. It's giving it a stage. And what I have found is just like a kiddo, like a, a small kid who's having a tantrum. If you sit on them, they're only going to yell louder. But if you allow their tantrum to have a voice, it's done. And then you can move on. So part, some of the sessions are about that. Giving your shadow, giving your joy a voice. Um, 
I worked with a woman who was, she had fibromyalgia, and her husband was a physician. She was um, very, very prominent in the Bay Area. And she had done everything she knew to find the solution for her fibromyalgia. She had read about me in an article in the Bay Area and came to see me. And she said, you know, I love dance. I'm in so much pain all the time. I'll try anything. So what I did is I gave her the first part, which was to warm up the body. And then we worked with joy. We worked with laughter. We worked. I just gave her keywords to move in that way. We finished the sessions. We did a debriefing. She said, I feel fantastic. I'm pain-free. I'll see you next week. <laughs> wow. She called me next week. She said, Francoise, I have been pain-free since our session, and I won't be needing private sessions, but I will do whatever workshops you have. Unfortunately, I did not have a great email list, and I lost sight of her. But, you know, you wonder, how did she have a spontaneous healing? Well, I don't have an answer for that, but what she invoked in that moment was an experience of being pain-free. And I do believe inherent within us is not only the wisdom, but joy and creativity that we do not access. We become so mental that we forget the body is our vehicle. And there's, there's a reason for it. It's just not to house the rest of us. It's to also give us this great sense of freedom and joy. Wise words indeed. So tell me, Francoise, do you have a website? Where can people find out more about this? I do, thank you. It's www.bodymindynamicswithans.org and they can email me at fenetter, N-E-T-T-E-R, at yahoo.com or just Google me. Great. Well, we've been speaking with Francoise Netter, the author of Movement for the Mind, Dance That Awakens Healing, Inspiration, and Wisdom. Thank you, Francoise. Thank you so much, Miriam. Well, I was walking by this booth and I saw a dish of delightfully colored um, vitamin size things that said, take your spiritual vitamins, read them, don't eat them. So, intrigued as I was, I opened one up and there was a message to warm your heart. I was talking to Tom Choquette and Susan Cook, the moving spirits behind spiritual vitamins, and I asked them what this was all about. It turns out that the story behind it is really impressive. Tom, tell me what is the idea behind spiritual vitamins? Well, the spiritual vitamins are to take some of the most inspirational quotes in various categories uh, from history as well as through to the present uh, in service and forgiveness and love and prayer and worship and, uh, and to make them readily available to people so that they can, uh, uh, we sell boxes of 60 and there are different quotes in each of the categories so you can gift yourself with a little spiritual inspiration at the start of every day. That's a delightful idea, kind of like those angel cards. Yeah. Well, we'll have to get some and put them out instead of candy. It'll be much better on the waistline. So tell me, um, what gave you the inspiration for this idea, Susan? We work with youth and young adults who are kind of lost, have lost their way, and been bombarded by the media, don't know who they are, and are confused. And Tom 
brought them together in a curriculum-based uh, model and has um, taught them meanings and values about love, about the importance of forgiveness and why you forgive, and as, and how to create a sense of community so that they can have a healthier life and kind of know where the lights are and the path is. So Tom created spiritual vitamins to fund truth seekers, truth seekers giving meanings and values to young adults. and. Um, we're hoping at this trade show that people will come and buy loads and loads and loads of them. The price point's very inexpensive, $2.95 a box, $5.95 retail, and it's a beautiful message uh, for every day. Well, I think the most beautiful message is the story behind it. So, um, whereabouts are you uh, located? Do you have just the one uh, organization? Well, Truth Seekers works nationally. We work with different organizations with their youth. We uh, 15 to 19 years old. Uh, we uh, we just finished doing a, uh, a a class in the Edmond School District. Uh, so we're going to be moving into school districts where we, we do stuff with private schools. We do stuff with uh, social and fraternal organizations that need things to have done with their kids, maybe for campouts and. Uh, we just we get the kids together, and there are five uh, five elements to true seekers. And the first one is is uh, values and meanings, and and we teach them how to identify within themselves what values they want to adopt in their lives, and then the process of becoming loyal to them. And then we talk about we have a, a, an eight hour well it's as long as it can be we have a curriculum on service and what service does to ourselves and to others and to the world around us and forgiveness and uh, peacemaking and mercy which are all three spokes of the same wheel but are critical for uh, self-esteem and for personal growth and then love and then the last element is community how to bring that into community how to work with it every day how to grow community based on uh, the foundation of these values we're working with and they're pretty awesome we've had a lot of we've had you know, over a thousand young people go through it and they stay with us, they keep us uh, connected. Some have gone two or three times and uh, just at different levels and it's pretty awesome. We, we love working with the kids. So if somebody wanted to inquire about your program and perhaps bring you to their school district or to their community, how would they find you? Well, we have a, a website and it's uh, TrueSeekersQuest.com, or is that true or truth? Truth, truth. T r u t h s e e k e r s. TrueSeekersQuest.com or TSQuest.com, and uh, we've got information there, enough information so they could contact us. And uh, and the spiritual vitamins are were gifted to us as an organization uh, to have a way to fund the programs that we do. A lot of the kids we work with are uh, scholarship because uh, they come from families that um, don't have the resources. And then, uh, so we take care of that and we train facilitators. We travel around the country and, uh, and, and introduce it as well as run the program for different groups. Well, that's a really fascinating story. So, if you want to fill up a dish with something that's much sweeter than candy, go to Spiritual Vitamins. And uh, does Spiritual Vitamins itself have a website? It does. 
spiritualvitamins.us? Yes. Spiritualvitamins.us because we're in the United States. And .com was already taken. <laughs> okay. There's something I want to say about spiritual vitamins. Is spiritual vitamins are created, processed, done in Turkey. We have friends that live in Turkey, and even though it helps us financially, we're fair trade and consciously made. There are Muslim women over there who can't really leave their home to earn a living. We have one woman that rolls the vitamins for us whose husband is very sick and they need the money. Another woman who rolls our vitamins whose husband died and she's alone. So they get around and sit in the living room and they roll these vitamins together. They earn a living far more than the fair trade wage, and we help them, they help us, and it's kind of like a sisterhood and we're grateful to have them so I, I think people need to know that this is a labor of, of love and service well Susan Cook and Tom Choquette it's been such a pleasure speaking with you and you know seeing two people who truly walk their talk thank you for what you do in the world thank you, well, thank Miriam. you Miriam. Thank we you. appreciate that I was walking past the Divine Arts booth and I spotted Manny Otto, who won not one, but two visionary awards last night at the awards banquet. And I was looking across his display and he has some fascinating books. Manny, tell me, what is the spirit, what is the guiding light of Divine Arts Publishing? Well, the, uh, we're celebrating the sacred in everyday life is, the, is our tagline and our motto and really what the ethos that drives us in, in creating these books. And the idea is that we want to bring spiritual practice into daily living. So we have an, a very eclectic line of books, but they all touch on that from, from one angle or another. We have Buddhist titles, we have some channeled material, we have more shift-oriented, like the shifting consciousness-oriented material, some writing, self-help, uh, but they all are really like the seven blind men and the elephant, each have a, a grasp, a really strong grasp on what feels true for us and so through this eclectic line of books we're really I think presenting a real um, singular vision in many ways. How long has this publishing uh, imprint been going? Uh, just three years. We I started working in 2010 with them to prepare the first books for launch in 2011. We've released seven books each year, um, including this year. We still have a few more months to go to release, but we'll have released 21 books in, seven, in three years. Well, the books are very impressive, and for a new imprint, it is most impressive that he actually has some award-winning books here. So oh, yeah. congratulations, Thank Manny. Thank you very much. Yes, we have uh, four uh, Nautilus Award winners. We have three uh, silver winners and one gold. Uh, Sophia, the Feminine Face of God, is our gold winner. And we have A Heart Blown Open, The Shaman and Ayahuasca, and Sacred Sites of the Dalai Lamas are our uh, silver winners. And then just last night, we won the cover awards for Fuller View, which goes into uh, Buckminster Fuller's vision of hope and abundance for all of humanity. He was one of the first people that said that we could have a world that works for everybody and we could leverage the technology and the scientific insight that we have at this time to create true abundance for everyone on the planet. And then the other winner 
was a book, is a book called uh, Listen to the Wind, Speak from the Heart. They won in the uh, shamanism category by Roger uh, Thunderhands, uh, um, sorry, Roger Thunderhands Gilbert. And the Bucky book was by L. Stephen Seiden. And we also had several uh, uh, authors join us. We had, well, three authors, uh, Kiara, who's with us now, um, who wrote Year Zero. And well, actually, I was going to ask Kiara, okay. because he was standing right here. Sure. We have author Kiara Windrider. Kiara, tell us about your books. Um, so, well, there's two books. Uh, year Zero is about the emergence of uh, planetary consciousness here now. And it's based on a lot of scientific information and research, as well as uh, mystical information coming from a variety of sources, the Mayan system and many other calendar systems. But essentially how we can work with this new energy that's coming in and imprint that into daily life in politics, economics, spirituality, psychology. So it's about creating a new society, a new vision for a new world. Well, what was your background that got you interested in this field? Well, I'm a psychotherapist. Um, I've also been interested in uh, global evolution, planetary evolution, human evolution for all my life. And it's all, a lot of it is based on the work of Sri Aurobindo and the mother who spoke about a new humanity, a new species that's emerging, which has been very fascinating for me. It's a cellular awakening. Um, so it's like our biological systems are changing, our DNA is changing, and that's affecting human consciousness and planetary consciousness. So and I feel like it's something that many, many different traditions are talking about, and it's like a big jigsaw puzzle that's coming together, and you're filling in the missing pieces. Oh, I think that's beautifully put. I, I often have that image of a big jigsaw puzzle. Um, you have a book called Ilahi Nur. What does that mean, and where did the title come from? Ilahi Nur in Turkish and Arabic means divine light. Uh, but it's a, Nur represents light that's not the opposite of something. Like in English, it's the opposite of darkness. It represents a polarity, you know, it's the light beyond and above. And, and Ilahi Nur is about what's emerging within each one of us as we connect with this larger field of light, as we uh, connect with the new wave of energy that's coming into the planet. So it's also a practical system of um, um, healing. So as we use this energy, it transforms the consciousness, it brings together the subconscious aspects of our being with the superconscious aspects, and through intention then works to um, open up new possibilities in healing and spiritual awakening and in manifesting new realities in the earth. So it's and it's something that's very simple, but very, very profound. Um, so the key to this is bringing together different um, centers within the brain, bridging together the limbic system with the higher mind, um, the reptilian, the mammalian, the new brain, in a and way that doing Doing that through meditation, uh, through practices? hands-on practice, yeah. Uh, so it's... It's basically making a bridge uh, between different systems and um, by and at the same time accessing this higher field of light by intent, through intention. Um, and amazingly, it works. 
you know, very, very profoundly. Very interesting. I can share my experience. So my experience with Alahanor was really uh, just a feeling that I should work with and support Kiara in bringing his work out into the world. I had I had worked with the company Divine Arts internally and with Kiara to bring these books forward without actually ever having experienced Ilahanor directly. And then when I did experience Ilahanor directly after the books had been released and after I'd met Kiara in person for the first time six months ago, I think it was around six months ago, and he worked with me with the Ilahanor energy, I had the most vivid dreams. And I don't remember a lot of my dreams, and I know there's a consistency in my dream experience and my sleep experience. and it was like a big splash had occurred in my subconscious and I was just getting the ripples of these for, for weeks. You know, this isn't uh, a practice for the point of making a dream life wild. It's a practice to do exactly what he just said, but my dream life was rippling in reaction to it. And it just kind of, after uh, a few weeks, um, and he was had moved on to his to where he was going after where he when he was staying with us it just kind of died down a little bit because I didn't continue the practice but for me that was just a really good indication of how powerful the Ilahanor work is and how powerful of an instrument Kiara is for that energy that said it doesn't rely you don't need Kiara to do it it's a very easy practice and and the book that we published Ilahanor shares the background, how it came into being, but is also a handbook for how to do this work yourself. Fascinating. So the title of the book is Ilahi Noor, Awakening the Divine Human by Kiara Windrider. Kiara, do you have a website? KiaraWindrider.net. So that's K-I-A-R-A Windrider.net. Super. And Manny, tell us, what is the website for Divine Arts? Uh, we're at divineartsmedia.com, divineartsmedia.com, and we're also on Facebook. Great. Who isn't on Facebook nowadays? <laughs> be there or be square. Well, it's been a delight talking to you both, and I wish you every success, Manny, because I think Divine Arts is on a mission that is so needed at this time. Thank you. Blessings. Blessings. Thank you. I'm speaking to Deborah Thunderbeat. She is a pioneer in sound healing and a multi-award winner. Uh, in addition to that, she's just come out with a new book called Look Up. Deborah, how nice for you to spare, spare the time to talk with me. Hello, how are you doing today? Tell me about what you do and how you came to do it. Um, well, let's see, I've been a musician all my life and I was always fascinated with sound and how it affects people. Mm -hmm. And um, I've always uh, been very spiritual all my life. I, uh, so, so, so I've been using color light sound since the early 90s before even heard, anybody heard of sound, you know, uh, healing. Uh, so I've been writing a lot of activational CDs with chakras and um, uh, basically I just got a new CD out with, for 12 DNA activational strains. And what's it called? 12, it's called DNA Activation. 
CD. It's the next step to a continuous ascension. It's the next step for us. We, chakras are very important. We should have them balanced. And the DNA is, our, is uh, we have 12 strands of DNA, and two strands are activated, and the other 10 are dormant. And scientists think that the other 10 are junk DNA, and it's not. It's our, it's our, our consciousness, our clairvoyance, our ESP, our intuition. It's our next step of expansion of awareness. So. And how did you come to understand the nature of these strands? Um, having actually having my 22 DNA activation done in 20 in, in 2004, totally all the Golden Lake codes have opened me up to the awareness, and then I just really pretty much channeled in a lot of my music. Um, I have a CD, for instance, called Cosmic Dream. I channel in the star systems that come in from Sirius, Orion, Nibiru. I'm very connected there, and and uh, they've actually I work with my spirit guides, and they said, oh, it's time to do the DNA activation CD. And it's a next next step for people to awaken on the planet Earth. And what does it feel like when you're connecting with your guides? Uh, well, one, <laughs> they're like my buddies. You know, mm -hmm. uh, I have many guides, I have many angel guides. And, Did you uh, ever go through a stage where you were wondering if you're going crazy, if this is never. really happening? Never. You no. already always had a knowing? Mm -hmm, a knowing. I knew, like, uh, I remember at eight, eight years old, uh, I knew me and my father in a past life together. How I knew about past lives, I just knew. Mm -hmm. And I, and I keep, uh, eventually I had it proven that it was right, that it was true, mm -hmm. you know. And things, uh, it's a long story, and I, I, at eight years old, he would, he would doodle Native American Indian chiefs, and I looked at it one day, and I said, "Oh, we want to pass life together as Native Americans," and I, and he was the chief, and I was his son. I even said that as a female, and then I had an Akashic record reading about ten years later, and I asked the lady, "Were me and my father in a past life together?" Never told her any detail besides that, and she went into detail. She said, "Yes, you were both the Native American Indians together, and your name, and I was the chief, and my father was the son." I had it backwards, mm -hmm. but I was right. Mm -hmm. and, my, and she said, your name is, was Chief Thunder Beat. And that's where I got my name from that reading. Interesting. And yes, and that was a 500 years old. Uh, they said I was Chief Thunder Beat. And I had a chief come to me and, and double prove that. So um, for all the people that are um, aware, and, and, and um, I'm uh, really excited, actually, about my new book, it's called Look Up, My Encounters with ETs and Angels. And my, my guide said it was not safe or t right timing to put this out till this year. And it's actually a story with me and my mother. I was four years old, playing in the driveway, mm -hmm. broad daylight, and a ship came over and took me up in this like invisible tube. And my mother came running out the door of the house and sh after me, and they brought her up too. So ever since then, we've had contact with these very beloved golden beings of light that have been coming throughout through our whole life. Mm -hmm. And this is what the story is all about. And they're positive beings. They've been here and they've been helping us. And they're nothing like the, you know, mean grays with the big eyes. They, they're golden. They're golden light beings and they're connected with Jesus. So and it's wow. a beautiful, loving uh, story so and the the title is look up yeah and what's your website deborah thunderbeat.com i hope you enjoyed our little romp through inats 
Until next week, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.